Thank you, and good morning, Skillman. Good to see you all today. It's good to be back with you. I didn't say last week how much I appreciated Ken and Shane and David inviting me to be a part of this time with you all and work with you a little bit. Uh, Rolando and Jenny and I were at Abilene Christian together. He was in, and I were in club together. We won't tell stories of that. We're still attending church, and that's a good thing. So that's, that's real good. Um, we have started into a series on um, healing and wounding from a spiritual standpoint about 600, 625 years before the time of Christ. A prophet in Judah uh, named Jeremiah was called by God to prophesy to the people of Judah. It was a terrible time. The nations around Israel were going to invade and carry Judah off into captivity. God commanded that uh, Jeremiah not marry or have children because his kids would have been taken away into captivity. Uh, and he was a priest. And as he looked around, the prophets and the priests had pretty much given up on the people. Uh, the people were in dire straits. Things were pretty awful. And God gives Jeremiah a prophecy to speak to uh, the nation of Judah. And in Jeremiah chapter 6 and in verse 13, there are some very powerful words that God has to say about wounding and healing. If you have your Bibles, we'll read there. It will be our text this morning, and then we'll make some comments about this. Jeremiah 6 and verse 13 says, From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen when they are brought down. I will punish them, says the Lord. This was a prophecy of God, not against the people of Judah. It wasn't a prophecy against the congregation. It wasn't a prophecy against the people, the average folks in the pews. This was a prophecy against the prophets and the priests. And the prophecy, the condemnation was that very specifically, the text says, they do not dress the wounds of my people as though they were what? serious. They're not taking the wounds of God's people seriously. And God takes them very, very seriously. And so we see in this passage that, number one, it's very clear that God recognizes when his people are wounded and he intends for his people to be healed and experience that, period. Mount 30 years ago, 1988, a group of elders came to me and they said, the people of our church have been through a tough time, and could you spend the next year with us, preaching, talking, counseling, spend some time with us and see if we could get through a season of healing together? Sure, we could try that. And since that time, over the last three decades, a church after another after another have approached me and said, we're not doing real well right now. We've been through some pain. 
and we need to spend some time with God in healing. As I've spent those years with those churches, I've noticed that there are certain patterns. There are certain patterns to woundedness. Uh, when I go in for the doc to the doctor and I say I'm not doing real well, first thing she wants to do is run a bunch of tests on me. They're going to poke something in my arm and take a bunch of blood and do blood pressure and tell me all this stuff I'm eating that I'm not supposed to be eating. <laughs> and then they're going to slap me around and say, okay, you're going to. But the first thing they're going to do is an assessment on this thing. So this morning, could I very carefully and very generally talk to you about ways churches are wounded. I need to say to you this morning, I don't know your story particularly well. I'm just getting to know you. So I'm being descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm just talking about things that I've seen and ask you to listen in a little bit about that. There'll be six of these, and then we'll talk about where do we go from here. The first wound that I've noticed churches can experience is a wound of exhaustion. Sometimes churches are just tired. Churches have three basic resources, time, money, and people. And sometimes those resources get used. Sometimes they get abused and they get used up. I was working with a church a number of years ago that had a very powerful founding preacher. And he'd been with them for years and years. And when he left, so left their vision and their energy. And they had one minister after another, after another, after another come in and work with them, and they never got a good fit. And as they went through those years, their spirit, their energy, their resources, their drive, and even their community changed, and they got more and more tired. And so when I began working with them, the wound that they were experiencing was a wound of exhaustion. You can take a group of people and just use them up. And after a while, they need a little bit of recharging. I live over by Love Field, and uh, I hear those Southwest 737s coming and going all the time. And they'll take them offline and put them on the west side into a hangar periodically, and they'll put a gauge on them. And they're measuring uh, for fissures in the skin because you put an airplane at 30,000 feet under pressure for a long period of time. If you're not careful, that thing will develop cracks. And they call that metal fatigue. Well, you put a church or God's people under enough pressure over an extended period of time and you don't care for them, you don't dress the wounds of my people, eventually they're going to wear out a little bit. And so the prescription for that is a little care and concern and, and spending time being restored by the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Let's look at number two. If the first one is exhaustion, the second one is going to be something called, something called incompetence. Churches, families, people get worn out because of incompetence. Just basically said, some churches don't do church very well. It's a lot of work to pull off a good worship service, to do a great preschool like you have, to do a good missions program worldwide. It takes a lot of effort to do that. A lot of you are like me. You've been in church your whole life, and you've been in churches that have been ministered to very, very well, and you've also been in churches that operated about like an unmade bed. 
and you go in there and you just go, why can we not seem to get things done around here or done particularly well? There is ministry incompetence. Sometimes churches aren't effectively served by ministers. Ministry is a pretty easy place to hide out, in case you didn't know. Sometimes churches have what's called ethical incompetence. People don't play by the rules. Uh, they lie, they cheat, they steal, they do things that are unethical. Because in my line of work, Monday through Friday, as a marriage and family therapist and as a professor, I have a professional code of ethics that I've got to abide by. In church, we just hope everybody's going to go by the New Testament and behave themselves. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Churches sometimes can be hurt through vision incompetence. In other words, sometimes the vision of the church no longer matches the people there or matches the community that's around them. And they need to recraft that vision just a little bit and look at where we're going. So there can be exhaustion that's occurring. There can just be basic incompetence where people are not doing the hard work of ministry which was going on, that was what was going on in Jeremiah's time. In Jeremiah's time, the prophets and the priests were looking at the people and they're realizing that they're hurt, they're realizing that they're in pain, and they're just going, yeah, I don't want to mess with that. That's just too much work. You're having a rough time? Uh, well, we'll ch check you later. I I've, I've heard enough. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Get you another job, because that's your job to bind up those wounds. Number three, the third wound that churches experience is one that we call the narcissistic wound. If you remember your Old Testament history, you'll remember that the first king of Israel was whom? King Saul. Do you remember why they chose Saul to be king? Anybody remember what his chief characteristic was? He was what? Yeah, he was taller than everybody else. They looked at him and they said, he looks like a president. He'd look good behind that presidential seal. They were looking at the image. We live in Dallas. I grew up in Dallas pretty much. Moved here in 68 when I was 11. And Dallas is just the home of the narcissistic church. We have churches that spring up here all the time that are personality churches. In fact, when I'm driving to Fort Worth tomorrow to council, I'll pass one or two of them that are empty right now because they had big personalities, and what goes up oftentimes does what? It's going to come down. And a personality church is going to be driven by ego because the center of that church is not the cross of Jesus Christ. The center of that church is going to be the ego of that preacher or that minister. And it's real interesting because those churches typically have lots of secrets. Those churches have a lot of stuff that's going on behind the scenes that isn't talked about. And a lot of times what will happen is eventually that house of cards is going to come down. It's all going to implode. And that's when they call me on the phone and say, this has just exploded. We got a mess here and we don't know what to do with this thing. Can you come in and fix it up in about three weeks and put us back on track? <laughs> Sure, because typically, you all know this, you've seen it before, that personality church is going to implode 
and then quickly run out, and what are they going to shop for? Another personality. You're exactly right, Shane. The exact same thing they had before. And then what will they do? They will repeat the pattern that they've done before. We see it over and over again. That's what happened with Saul. Saul could not handle the fact that when he'd come in from war, he would hear with David when he'd come in, David has, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his what? His ten thousands. And could his ego handle that? Couldn't handle it. So our first wound that we encounter is a wound of exhaustion. God's people are just worn out and tired. They've been, they've been warning. They need a season of healing. Second wound is incompetence. We really haven't been doing the business of being in ministry in the church. The third wound is a wound of ego, which is a wound of uh, placing one individual in the central part of theology in the place of the cross. And, and boy... I'll stand before the good Lord for everything I've done wrong someday, but I wouldn't want to stand before the Lord and say, I believe I replaced me with the church. But that's just me. The fourth wound is a little bit different. The fourth wound is a wound of sexuality. There are three kinds of wounds of sexuality that can affect a church. I've been in this business for 40 years, and I've had clients through my office for 40 years who have left organized religion, all churches, not just Church of Christ, not just Baptist, not just Episcopal, not just Jewish. They've left religion in general because of poor sexual boundaries. This occurs in three different ways. Number one, it occurs because of flirtatious ministers and leaders. People will come in and they'll sit down and I'll say, are you going to church anywhere? They said, no, I don't go to church anywhere. Why not? They said, well, we kind of had a weird guy there at our church who was a minister who just was a little too handsy and said weird stuff. Flirtatious ministers. Number two, affairs and sexual misbehavior. There are individuals that come into church and use the church as their match service they're going to try and hit on women or men to have extramarital affairs. The third one is sexual predators. The preschool you have here has got, I think, 300 kids you had, said you had, or more or less. And I can guarantee you every day their director and assistant director have very stringent boundaries on who gets access to their, those children. One in four girls has been sexually molested by the time she's 18. One in six men have been. And that number's probably low. And that, that wound stays with people throughout their life. That's rough stuff, folks. I had a lady sitting in my office this week who said to me, you know, I was the victim of sexual predator when I was in youth group, and I haven't darkened the door of a church since. About 50% of the churches that I work with, have worked with over the last 30 years, have been victimized by sexual wounds. And that's serious stuff. Number five is very different from that one. 
Number five is the tough bargainer wound. I teach a course over uh, the university in conflict resolution. It's a capstone course in our master's program. And in that, we look at the way in which people deal with conflict. And people have different conflict styles. And one of those styles is what's called a tough bargainer. You may have one of these people where you work or one of these people in your family. We do. We tried to get them out of town and they won't leave, but <laughs> be that as it may. So we're considering a hitman from Chicago to come down and do some work on that deal. But your tough bargainer is the individual that says, I'm going to win and I will win at the expense of the relationships that I have. So getting their way is very important, and the impact that it has on the relationships around them really doesn't matter to them because they really want to win. This stuff is just poison in a marriage. I do tons of work on this as a marriage shrink, and it's also just very difficult in any other group, a team, a university, a business, and especially in church. Your tough bargainer is the individual that's generally going to be pretty aggressive. Uh, number two, they're going to think that they know better than anybody else what needs to be done. They're going to press for their solutions to be implemented. And most interestingly, they really view themselves as being highly effective people persons. They have no social radar. I had one guy that I worked with who was an elder in a church in another town in another time, and he could literally walk through the foyer and leave bodies in his wake. I mean, it was just, it was unbelievable. But if you have lunch with him and said, how do you think you relate to other people? He said, people love me to death. And I'd want to go, yeah, they'd love to roll over you with a lawnmower to death is what they'd like to do. But there's that lack of how am I being perceived by the people around me. If you've got your Bibles, there's a real interesting passage. This is nothing new. The early church had to deal with this. 3 John, we don't typically go to 3 John, but 3 John verse 9. 3 John is so small there's only one chapter. You just do the book and the verse. So 3 John verse 9 talks about John dealing with a tough bargainer. He said, I wrote to the church, by Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he's doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who wants to do so and puts them out of the church. Diotrephes was running amok in this church, so much so that he was opposing one of the very apostles of Christ. Why? Because he knew better. He was smarter than everybody else. Some folks in church carry wounds of what I'm going to call verbal violence. If I were to come up to Rolando, which I would never do this, if I were to come to Rolando and I were to slap him around a little bit, that's physical violence. If I were to get a hold of his bank account and 
empty it out and steal all of his money, that is financial violence. But if I were to say things about him or to him that were aggressive and unfeeling and mean, that's called verbal violence. I counsel people all the time who grew up in families where they had a family member who was verbally violent to them. And they can hear that person's voice in their mind still to this day. And we try and turn that voice off. There are people that have been in churches that have heard things either from the front or from members that are verbally violent. And we need to heal from that. The last form of woundedness that a church can experience is what I call the borderline wound. I don't do much help to this kind of a church. A borderline church is a church that usually thinks it has a pretty good image. They may have a big history, they may have a big name, they may be very well known, and they're very proud of who they are. Uh, they have a narrative. And the narrative that they have is they have been mistreated by leader after leader, minister after minister, person after person. And when I go in there, they've got this story of everything that's been done wrong to them. And the interesting thing about it is this particular church thinks it's got all the answers. So as I'm working with them, no, they're not interested in this, they're not interested in this, they're not, they know better than everybody else. They fall in love real quick. So they'll go out and they'll get a preacher. They'll bring that guy in. And pretty quickly, though, they turn on that preacher and get rid of him. Will Ed Warren, who was my professor of ministry when I was an undergraduate, said there are churches that uh, bite, chew, and then spit. And then he said there are churches that just chew and spit. And a borderline will just simply chew and spit, one after another after another. And some of you likely that have been in church for any period of time have come into a church and you have left pretty quickly and all you know is there's just something wrong here. And you don't know exactly what it is. You say, oh my goodness, Don, that's really heavy stuff. Yeah, I know. We're gonna spend the next few weeks leaving woundedness and moving to healing. We're going to be talking about what do you do to spiritually heal the kingdom of God. And we're going to look at some key texts to do that. Can I suggest some things to you out of Jeremiah 6, though, as we finish today? Number one, the first thing that we will observe is that God realizes His people can be wounded and he takes that very, very seriously. And so should we. This is not ancillary to the kingdom of God. This is not something that is secondary to his mission. This is not something that we're being somehow unspiritual for pausing and talking about. This is the essence of the work of the kingdom of God. How can we be ministers of reconciliation in Paul's terms when we are not reconciled ourselves? 
God takes this stuff real seriously. Number two, He expects there to be deep, profound, and meaningful healing applied to the spiritual wounds of His people. He looks at the prophets and the priests in the Old Testament and He said, You say, peace, peace. They treat the wounds of my people as though they weren't what? Serious. And he condemns them for doing it. He said, you've got to take the time to take care of my people. The third thing he says to us is, he realizes that among the Israelites, among Judah, there will be people with another agenda. The time and the trouble to heal from that. Does that make sense? That's not me talking, that's God and Jeremiah talking. The fourth thing that I would suggest to you is the wounds that you have may be very different from the wounds that someone sitting next to you has. Going through history with the church is a very individual experience. You may be sitting there this morning going, I don't know why we're talking about this. I don't know why this guy, Don, is in here. I don't know why we're having a sermon on this. This is the biggest waste of time. This is a bunch of hooey. And his PhD has gone to his head. Nutcase. I'm not wounded. I'm just fine. And I think the rest of y'all are a bunch of weenies. Okay. But may I suggest to you that your experience going through time in history may not at all be the experience someone worshiping next to you has had. And the final thing I will say to you this morning comes out of Jeremiah, which is, this is not the end of the story. This isn't where it ends. When they prophesied about the coming of the Messiah, they said, he will be the great physician. And by his wounds, we are healed. And that's where we will begin next week. Amen?